0: Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.
1: Welcome to this educational event which is focusing on the rapid diagnostic service for cancer. Today with me are two GPs and I'll get them to introduce themselves. My name is Nigel Watson, I'm a GP in Hampshire and the Chief Executive of Wessex local medical committee. Sonia, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Hello, I'm Sonya Ward. I'm a GP in Bournemouth, Dorset, and I am, am the clinical lead for Dorset Cancer Partnership and also have a role uh, with the Wessex Cancer Alliance as one of their
1: GP leads. And Jane, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm Jane McLeod. Um, I'm a GP working um, in New Milton in the New Forest. Um, And I'm also one of the GPs working with the Wessex Cancer Alliance and have been involved with the setting up of the rapid diagnostic service along with Sonia. Okay, thank you
1: for that. So you know, if you look at cancer, we know that one in two of the population will develop cancer at some time in their lifetime. Each year that means about 360,000 people will develop cancer. So for the average practice of 8,000 patients, that equates to about 50 patients per year. We also know that cancer is responsible for about 25% of all deaths, and 50% of these will occur before the age of 75. Um, But that means the majority of cancers will occur over the age of 75. Currently, the survival rate for somebody presenting with cancer for more than 10 years is about 54%. So therefore, cancer forms an important part of the long-term plan, getting early diagnosis. Particularly, it is thought if we could get 75% of people diagnosed at stage 1 or 2, rather than the current 54%, that would mean there would be an additional 55,000 lives saved annually. So cancer is high on the agenda of the NHS. We've seen the introduction of the two-week wait or fast track for site-specific cancers, and this helps with quicker access to specialist care and diagnostics. But we know as GPs, actually patients don't always come in and fit into nice, neat boxes, so they don't always come in with those barn door symptoms like, you know, I've lost weight and I've got a change in bowel habit and I've got some bleeding uh, via the back passage. And you can uh, not be a rocket scientist to try and make the diagnosis, let alone get them into the right pathway. But I'm sure you've all experienced those people who come in with vague symptoms and you've got that Index of suspicion that this person's got cancer, but they don't fit into any of these pathways. So we'll stop there and um, ask Jane and Simon, so have you got any reflections on that in general before we get into some specifics about um, cancers?
2: I'd agree that we actually, since the introduction of the site-specific two-week weight forms, it makes patients with those obvious symptoms quite easy to manage in primary care in terms of accessing the care they need. But the ones that have the vaguer symptoms that you you're not quite sure about, sometimes they've come several times with those symptoms. Um, It's hard to know which pathway they fit into and how to get them investigated. And unfortunately they can be the ones, I'm sure we can all think of cases that get referred on a couple of different pathways, bounce around the system, and then sometimes really unfortunately end up with a late stage cancer diagnosis or presenting via the emergency department.
1: Jane, have you got any other comments about that?
0: I entirely agree as Sonia just said. I think, you know, the, the trouble with the existing um, two week wait pathways is they will um, just look at that specific set of symptoms. Um, but you know, and if a cancer isn't found then you know it's back to the GP and the GP doesn't really quite know what to do. So as Sonia says they, they bounce around and and are often diagnosed really quite late.
1: So access to diagnostics can sometimes be an issue for GPs, but as you say, um, site-specific is, is good uh, generally, but it's these vaguer ones. Okay, so this year we know the um, primary care network, DES, looks at early diagnosis of cancer, and also part of the quality and outcome framework looks at uh, early diagnosis of cancer and what we can do. And there's a description in the DES about these rapid diagnostic centres. Sonia, would you like to tell me a bit more about what a rapid diagnostic centre is and what's the rationale behind this?
2: Yeah, sure. So so I think the whole uh, the, the DES and the QOF di- this year re- really focusing on early detection of cancer really highlights how um, important how we're going to address this issue through in- with the communities and with primary care. So it's really, really encouraging to see that. But the mention of the rapid diagnostic centres or services. Um, So these are services that are being launched across the country. So each different Cancer Alliance area will be setting up a central service along these lines. And it really is to focus on that group of patients that we've just described, the vague symptom patients that don't fit into one of the site-specific pathways. And the aims of centres or services is that these patients can uh, be able to access a service that will arrange um, and the appropriate investigation at the appropriate time and then review and um, coordinate the onward management of these patients as well so they can be seen and diagnosed in a timely way. And the the mention of these centres and services in the DES hopes to encourage primary care to be aware of this as an emerging service um, and and make referrals where where appropriate to the service.
1: Okay, so in Dorset and Hampshire, I understand they're going to introduce a virtual rapid diagnostic service, which I think is quite unique because most of the Cancer Alliance are looking at... um, not necessarily centres, but services where patients will be seen face-to-face. So, Jane, could you tell me a bit more about what the rationale behind this is?
0: Right, okay. So, you know, as we've just been sort of talking about, um, the, the Wessex Rapid Diagnostic Service will be a new fast-track pathway for GP referral at the moment <coughs> for adult Patients who have these non specific symptoms, which might be caused by a cancer, and as we've just been discussing, historically these patients have had often a convoluted, delayed pathway to diagnosis despite having really quite significant risks of cancer. Um, so, for instance, a 60 year old with weight loss has around a 10% uh, risk of having a cancer. So that the Wessex RDS model, as you said, is innovative because it's a a virtual service. Now, obviously, since COVID, we've all become a little bit more um, comfortable with virtual consulting. Um, So the idea of this service is that uh, following GP referral, Um, to to the RDS, the patient will have usually a phone or sometimes a video consultation with an RDS-hub clinician um, who will gain more information from the patient and arrange um, appropriate diagnostics, etc. So um, from the, the patient's perspective, they will really only have to go to hospital to actually have their diagnostics um, which for many of our, our patients will be, you know, save quite a lot of time and, and difficulty. So that, okay. that's the ethos.
1: So Sonia, what sort of patients are we talking about? We, I mean, we talk about vague symptoms, but are there any specific, you know, things which are commonly known to be sort of, not necessarily red flags, but things that we should be mindful of that, that would go into this service?
2: Yeah, so we've been banding around the term vague or non-specific symptoms. My new catchphrase actually for the the type of patients that we're looking for here are the specifically non-specific. So what I mean by that is that those that aren't suitable for another tumour site two-week wait referral form. Um, The referral form for the RDS, it lists the inclusion criteria and sets of symptoms that we're looking for. Um, it's important to say it's open to all adults over the age of 18. Um, and the sets of sort of symptoms that we're particularly talking about here are weight loss, so new, significant, and unexplained weight loss, constitutional symptoms that are new and unexplained, so nausea, persistent fatigue, loss of appetite, and bloating, new unexplained abdominal pain, or new unexplained pain suggestive of bone pain. Um, We've also included on the referral criteria, um, persistent and newly raised platelet count, recognising that raised platelet count is um, quite strongly associated with some sets of cancers, but in the absence of symptoms, it can be quite hard to know how to investigate those patients currently. Also a category for referrer gut feeling. So I'm sure all of us as GPs can think of a patient like that, where you had a bad feeling about them, but not much more tangibly to go on than that. So if referring to this service on gut feeling, we ask that you provide some sort of description uh, in the text box of your concerns there. Interestingly, in the pilots um, of of rapid diagnostic service, the the early iterations, patients referred with GP gut feeling as a criteria had some of the highest rates of conversion to cancer. I also just wanted to highlight as well the difference between rapid diagnostic service and the cancer of unknown primary services that run in some areas currently. So cancer of unknown primary services where available are for patients where there is already pretty good evidence of a cancer. But it's not clear where the primary is. So for example, you might have picked up lung metastases on a chest x-ray but not be sure where the primary is, or liver metastases on ultrasound scan. The difference is that the rapid diagnostic service is for patients who have concerning symptoms but no evidence of the cancer so far.
1: Okay, thank you. I mean I've always thought that gut feeling isn't really gut feeling, it's that you subconsciously recognise a number of um, things that you either see or hear so, you know, your antennae are there, which, you know, this is this is something that's out of the normal and I think GPs are quite good at picking those up, so I suppose it doesn't surprise me that the pickup rate from the gut feeling is uh, higher than in some other areas, so that, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so, okay, that's really helpful to know that those are the sort of red flag symptoms, uh, I suppose, and then there's the others, the catch-all, which makes it really useful. So as a GP, if I'm sitting in my surgery, Jane, how do I access this service? Is it on um, what used to be called Choose and Book ERS now, or do I need to do tests before I refer, or can I just say, oh, I'm a bit suspicious, I'll refer straight into this service? What's, what's the pathway? <laughs>
0: So, yeah, no, there is a very specific pathway, um, actually in some ways, um, you know, along the lines of existing um, site-specific, you know, referrals. So it is on ERS, and that is how we're wanting people to make the referral, and Also it is very important um, to use the specific referral form which has been created for this service, which really very much sort of sort of, is very similar to um, the format of the fast-track forms that we're quite familiar with. And it's been designed to try and automatically extract as much information as is possible so that the referring clinician um, doesn't have to populate large amounts of information. Having said all of that, as you've implied, there are certainly um, some filter tests which are mandatory. Um, They're the sort of things that probably most GPs would be thinking about doing anyway um, in these types of of patients. But if I just run through what's on the form, um, so a chest x-ray, a urine dip test, full blood count, ESR, CRP, UNEs, LFTs, thyroid function, uh, fast in glucose or in HbA1c, um, calcium, PSA in men, CA125 in women, and a FIT test. And we are also asking that if that, that battery of tests shows up and, a new, um, abnormal fasting glucose or raised HbO1c um, that the GP also requests a faecal elastase. So faecal elastase is not a test that we're very familiar with doing in general practice, um, but it's very straightforward. It's just um, a stool sample test. Um, And the reason that it's being asked for um, is that this is all tied up with research into pancreatic cancer Um, because, as we all know, patients with pancreatic cancer very often do have quite non-specific symptoms um, and present late and actually having um, a high index of suspicion for pancreatic cancer at the hub level. Uh, will influence the diagnostics which are offered to the patient. And the thing that is also very different about this referral form is that it is absolutely crucial that the mandatory filter tests are done by the GP and that all of the results are back before the referral is made. And the reason for that is that really the vast majority of these filter tests are to help exclude uh, really site-specific cancers, which actually then need to go down a different pathway. Um, So it really is very important. Um, And going forward, um, if a referral is received at the hub without all these these filter tests um, results, then um, really the hub will come back to the referrer to say that these need to be done. And that's not um, because the hub is being awkward, it's actually to make sure that the patient goes down the most appropriate route.
1: Okay, thank you. You you mentioned fit tests. Uh, Sonia, do you, is fit tests available everywhere in Wessex? Do you know,
2: So uh, I, I speak for the Dorset. As of recently, it is available in Dorset. The kits are in primary care to be requested. There are still a couple, I think, of patches where fit tests isn't quite available in Wessex yet but the work is going on behind the scenes to make sure it will be and as we'll hear in we'll hear a bit later about the phased rollout of this rapid diagnostic service and that those, those should tie together that as the service is rolled out in your area fit testing is
1: available. Okay, and probably. Can, I
0: just, can yeah. I just add to that, sorry to interrupt, um, but I know the uh, Wessex Cancer Alliance today was saying that actually fit testing is available in all areas of Wessex now.
1: Oh right, okay. Okay, yeah. well that's hot off the press. Um, and actually I think um, we've probably, the three of us have discussed before that we probably need to arrange another one of these all based on fit tests and um, how fit test is used both in screening and in um, the diagnosis of um, bowel problems. So, okay, well, let's, let's park fit test for the moment. So, um, Sonia, if I could ask you, so I refer the patient to this um, virtual service. Could you give me a bit more detail about, um, James just talked about the hub, so is this a, a real place where people are, and, and who works in it? Um, have we recruited people for it, and who are they? Don't need to know their names, but what, did, what have we got?
0: So
2: as Jane said, the referral will be received in the central hub and triaged by the clinical team there. So the clinical team um, will be made up of of two GPs working in the service, a hospital consultant and a clinical nurse specialist um, with admin support as well. Um, So the the, the vision for the central hub is that that team would be co-located together and able to interact and work as a team. Obviously, with, with COVID and remote working, that premise has changed slightly with all of us working a lot more remotely at the moment. Um, but normally for now, the, the hub will be based at University Hospital Southampton, but with a degree of virtual working, but they'll be working very closely as a hub MDT team. Um, and that hub team, you know, working together like that, will then speak to the patients and decide which diagnostics tests
1: are needed for those patients. So if if I'm a patient in Dorchester, for example, so my GP refers me, I phone up the hub in Southampton um, and they say, yes, you need a CT chest abdo. Does that mean I'm going to have to go to Southampton to have the um, CT examination?
2: Um, no. So the hub team will be able to re- request investigations at l- local hospitals at the trusts across the Wessex patch. Um, so patients will have a, an element of, of choice as to which hospital they want to go to, but for the vast majority of patients we know they like to go to their to their local area for the trust and that's where they will physically attend to have investigations.
1: So Jane are you then telling me that um, this, this virtual hub will have access to these um investigations, and if they request the one in Dorchester, it will be able to come back. So all the acute trusts across the two counties will be able to share these results with the hub.
0: Yes, um, in a word, and that—that's what um, a lot of time and effort has been spent um, trying to achieve, and is still ongoing. But yes, yeah, so the idea is that the patient is referred by the local GP and that the patient um, has their diagnostics done at whichever hospital um, is closest to them or they prefer, and that the results of the diagnostics come back to the virtual hub. And that's the beauty of the virtual hub, really.
1: So we know when we work um, between two hospitals that sometimes sharing images, you know, they'll get patients go to a hospital and say, oh, I've had a CT scan at another hospital, but we can't see the results. Have they managed to resolve that issue so the hub clinicians will be able to see the diagnostic tests wherever they've been done?
0: Yes, I mean, basically that's a lot of work has been done around this. Um, So yeah, the hub clinicians will have full access to the diagnostic results.
1: Okay, Jane, could I just ask you, one of the concerns for GPs is that somebody in the hub will do a, a test or an investigation and then the result will come back to the GP because obviously these these people are working virtually. Are they actually going to be responsible for the pathway or are those are those results going to come back with the expectation that the GP is going to action them?
0: So the GP will not be copied into any of these results. So following the usual principles that whoever requests the test is responsible for receiving it and dealing with it, the results of the diagnostics will go back solely to the RDS hub and the GP will not be copied into those results.
1: Okay, so that's, that's good news. So Sonia, can I ask you, from our previous discussion, somebody goes through the hub, they have their diagnostics, and it's been identified that there's probably four outcomes. So the first one is nothing's found. Does this mean that cancer's been excluded?
2: So I suppose it's difficult, as with everything in medicine, nothing is 100%, is it? And that's always the caveat. But with that cohort of patients that go through diagnostic tests and there's no positive findings on those tests, nothing is visible or obvious, those patients will be discussed amongst the hub team, working together as an MDT team, Um, and if there are still sort of concerning features or questions, that hub team will actually have access to advice from a broad range of specialties should they need it at that point. If the sort of summation and conclusion of those hub discussions is that we can't find anything, um, and for sort of no further action at this point, that will be explained to the patient, and the patient will be discharged with with careful safety netting both to the patient and to the GP about things to look out for, um, or when potentially re-referral might be considered.
1: Okay, I mean I'm always very careful never to say to patients there's nothing wrong with you. I always say that I can't find anything wrong with you, but you're right. The safety netting is important. Okay, so if we go on to the next stage, so they do the test and they find an incidental finding but there's nothing serious, what would the hub do then?
2: So um, obviously if you're CT scanning people, there will be um, a sort of rate of incidental findings. So things like lung nodules, adrenal nodules, that sort of thing. So if that's found on scan, the, the uh, hub team will contact the patient and explain the finding. Also explaining that you know this is incidental, it's not thought to be the cause of your symptoms, um, which is always important for patients to understand. Some of those incidental findings may need um, ongoing follow-up, so uh, depending on the types of lung nodules, sometimes they need to be sort of ongoing reviewed, and if ongoing follow-up is needed for any of those, the hub team will arrange for that um, in the trust that is local to the patient, so their local hospital for ongoing management or surveillance.
1: Okay, so next one is they, they do the investigations and they pick up significant non-cancer pathology. So we know what often happens in this is you get gets bounced back to the GP, could you refer them? Is that what the hub is going to do?
2: Yes. So again, sometimes, and, and from the pilot studies that they did, other non-cancer pathology can be found. So things like pulmonary fibrosis, inflammatory bowel disease, those sorts of things. And if it's felt that that needs specialist uh, referral or input, then the hub team will be responsible for referring that patient into the clinical team at their local hospital.
1: Okay, that's that's useful to know because uh, I think that causes a degree of, you know, the five o'clock on a Friday that somebody's had an investigation done by the hospital and they've got a pulmonary embolus or a saddle embolus and could you just sort it out? Okay, but so the final thing is, you know, a number of these patients clearly will be detected with cancer. So, if somebody has cancer, what will they do then? Will they sort of phone up the GP and say, Can you contact this patient and tell them they've got cancer and write a referral to the hospital? Or how is the virtual hub going to manage those?
2: Sure. So, again, working off the premise that the hub takes on the clinical responsibility for this patient, we don't want things to be going back to the GP. This is the HUB's role. So if cancer is seen on investigation or strongly suspected, um, then the patient will be referred by the HUB team to the site-specific cancer MDT at their local trust. Um, and that cancer-specific MDT team will, will make arrangements to see the patient explain diagnosis any future sort of biopsy or tissue sampling that might be needed and the um, ongoing management?
1: Okay, that's really helpful. Um, Jane, can I ask you um, we mentioned pilot earlier. so I understand this has gone live in Poole, but it's due to go spread across Dorset and um, Hampshire. Can you just give me a, a bit a bit clearer information about what the rollout looks like?
0: Yeah, so it's a relatively soft rollout. Um, So as you say, it has already gone live. So it started with one PCN in Poole on the 22nd of June. Um, And then another two um, Dorset PCNs went live at the end of uh, July. Uh, Two Hampshire PCNs are due to go live on the 17th of August. Isle of Wight and the rest of Dorset um, 12th of October and the rest of Hampshire on by the 30th of November. So that's the, oh, the rollout no. plan, really. Hmm.
1: So we'll have, it have full coverage by, you know, into the autumn. Okay, that sounds good. What, what are the, so the hub people, have they, have they got clinical records? What clinical system are they using to, you know, do their, making their records or onward referral?
0: So they're using um, system one,
1: um, oh, right, but it, okay.
0: it will be purely, you know, for the the hub to be using.
1: So will will GPS that have got system one be able to see what the hub is doing in terms of the clinical records?
0: I don't know the answer to that. I suspect the answer is probably no, because the um, whole drive with this is to not be sharing things with gps so that they don't um feel that they have to be taking action about things
1: so therefore if the hub sets it up it you, you can only see it if people have sharing in and sharing out so if they're not sharing it out which makes sense because i think um practices don't necessarily want to um get that information until um you know the a, a letter comes or a communication comes towards the end Okay, so this, is, this has been live for a few weeks now. Sonia, what's, what are the lessons been learned so far um, for this?
2: So we've been reviewing the referrals that have come in since the pilot service was launched. And at many points, come back really to two key things. Um, the importance of doing the filter tests, as Jane said. So there's been a couple of cases um, where not all the filter tests have been done. Particularly fit, which, as we're aware, is a new test that primary care may not be aware that they can access or know how to use. Um, But it is very important to make sure it's done so that we don't find a patient that's more suitable for another pathway, like the colorectal pathway. So, importance of these tests is the first learning point, really, Um, and the the second one comes back to my specifically non-specific catchphrase, um, because it's also been sort of an example of of a patient. Um, that would have actually fitted the criteria for a site-specific uh, referral form, so that was, that was fed back to the GP and um, referral made that way.
1: Okay, um, and I suppose the, the concern may be that this is a catch-all for too many patients, but I suppose that's part of the learning from the pilots and as we spread it out what, um, uh, what that means.
2: I suppose I'd just say, obviously, with any new service, there's going to be uncertainties about using it. When it goes live in your area, um, there will be a contact point for discussing with the hub if there are cases you're not sure about, or um, so that will be available. And, and we also hope you know that like in the cases that we said where there are patients that maybe aren't appropriate for this, there'll be a two-way discussion with the hub getting back in touch with you if the patient isn't suitable.
1: So we know from a lot of this discussion that there are barriers to early diagnosis so Jane would you like just to um, expand on what you think the barriers are?
0: So I, I think there can be a lot and there are a lot of different factors that that play into this really, um, so I, I think in terms of um, patients, There's perhaps a feeling of, yes, I know cancer's out there, but it's not going to happen to me. Or I'm far too young to have a cancer. So even though I've been losing weight and passing a bit of blood, it can't be anything to be, you know, that worried about. Um, I I also think there is still potentially a bit of sort of lack of knowledge, um, you know, so. For instance, the 60-year-old who's losing weight may think, well, oh, it's just I'm getting older now," rather than actually really realizing that that could be a symptom of, of something more important. Um, equally, I think some patients are quite frightened and, you know, potentially develop a bit of a sort of ostrich head in the sand you know, sort of reaction to new symptoms as well. Uh, And I think for some patients, it can be about difficulty accessing healthcare. So particularly, you know, maybe, you know, if you're homeless or um, there could be many reasons why it might be difficult for you to access healthcare. Um, And up to a point, sometimes the government plays into that. Um, I mean, we've all been told to protect the NHS during COVID quite rightly, but actually that message can be interpreted by patients as, you know, GPs are busy, the health service is busy, um, I shouldn't bother them about this little bit of bleeding, you know, I hardly ever notice it, so, you know, I I just ought to put up with it. Um, I think at, at a GP level, then um, there's very much a dichotomy between pressure on us to not overuse diagnostics, but on the other hand, um, being told that we should be referring more to pick up cancers earlier. So I think that can be quite difficult. Um, I think, as we've sort of alluded to, patients don't always come with typical symptoms, so it, it can be really quite difficult. I also think modern general practice tends to have far less continuity now. And therefore, you know, if you're the fifth GP who's seen a patient with a set of symptoms, you may not fully realize that this patient has been coming along for quite a while. Um, and, and I think increasingly, it's quite difficult um, to keep up to date with all the changing. Sort of referral criteria. I mean, the two-week wait forms, etc., are quite complex now as well. Um, and I think you know, if we move to sort of secondary care barriers, I think that on the one hand it's good that we have lots of specialists in hospitals now, but actually the le- lack of generalists in as consultants, I think, can be quite difficult. Um, I think you know, many GPs are, are aware of having made a referral to somebody who just looks at one very tiny aspect of the person and actually misses the holistic uh, approach. Um, and I think also the government plays a part in some of this because yes, we get publicity campaigns about cancer, which is really good. But there is also this sort of uh, innate pressure on GPs not to over refer, really, um, you know, and perhaps government attitude about alcohol, smoking, those sorts of things. So I think there's a whole number of factors that mitigate against early diagnosis. And perhaps also in Britain, we're a little bit more reserved than some of our European.
1: Um, populations as well about presenting. So. Uh, you pose a, a number of barriers and um, I suppose that contributes to some of the discussions about our detection rate for cancer is lower at an earlier stage than other countries. We often think it's not comparing the same data but the number of those things that you've identified um, we could probably address. And Sonia, do you want to comment about self-referral for Some of the cancer pathways do you think that might um, remove some of those barriers or do you think it might cause more problems?
2: Yeah so if you read the sort of um, the detail behind these proposed rapid diagnostic centres or services there's an aspiration that over time they might include self-referral pathways for patients with concerning um, symptoms. So I I think there there are pros and cons and, and this needs to be sort of carefully managed but that there are patients who struggle to access traditional primary care, uh, be that lifestyle related um, or for, for various reasons, but they do uh, recognise that, that, that they've come up against you know, a concerning s- symptom and they want to get help. Um, so, for example, one of the pathways that potentially could be looked at is women with breast lumps. It's well known amongst the public that a lump in your breast needs looking at. Um, and it, it sort of and in, in primary care, we often we, we often see those patients, but refer them straight on for those thorough investigations. So that might be one pathway that would work well for patient self referral. But
1: I think for many GPs, if the patient comes in saying oh, I've got a breast lump, and even if you can't find it, you're going to refer them anyway. Mm. Okay, that's really helpful. Can I, China, Can I come back to you? You talked a bit earlier about these patients who come with a a metastatic cancer, you don't know where the primary is, they, they cause GPs a, a real problem, I think as Jane mentioned earlier. Um, could we refer those into the rapid diagnostic service because we know they've got cancer but we don't know? Or are, are there other services available where we should be referring those patients?
2: Yeah, so there's a there's a sort of a bit of an interesting differentiation there because we've spoken so far about patients with vague or non-specific symptoms where we're worried about cancer but we don't have any proof so far, and we're almost asking the rapid diagnostic service to find the proof and investigate the patient. There are other circumstances when you might be working a patient up in primary care and get a chest X-ray report back describing multiple lung metastases with no obvious primary and no. Other symptoms to go on, or another scenario is um, you do a scan of the abdomen and it comes back reported with you know like liver metastases, but again you you don't know where the primary is or how to get that patient investigated. In some areas, um, there there are services for investigating these patients, and I know working as a GP in Dorset, I would use for those patients the CUP service.
1: What's the CUP service?
2: So CUP, C-U-P, um, stands for Cancer of Unknown Primary. Oh, right. Service run by the oncologists, uh, because this is a of patients that, you know, pretty much do have a cancer. So the oncologists see them um, and they, they have their own referral criteria, but essentially it's along the lines of having found evidence of cancer, but not knowing where the primary is, we can refer and endorse it to the CUP service for that and the patients are looked at in that way.
1: Okay, so Jane, if you get these patients with cancer of unknown primary, is there a cup service in Hampshire that you refer them to?
0: I'm not aware of there being any um, service like that available in Hampshire.
1: So what do you do when you get a patient who, uh, like Sonia says, there's uh, metastatic cancer on x-ray or whatever, where do you refer them to?
0: So... Um, I've, I've often found that an extremely difficult situation to deal with. Um, usually what I've done is, because I work in the New Forest, um, I tend to phone and speak to one of the medical consultants at Lymington Hospital who are very approachable and we discuss the, the patient and you know, perhaps try to tease out a pathway that's appropriate for that particular patient. Um, but it's, it's, I've found it very difficult.
1: So that's so. If we get the rapid diagnostic service up and running, that addresses the um, people with vague symptoms. But certainly for Hampshire GPs, it sounds like the the cup type service is a gap that's missing. Um, so perhaps as the all of us on this. Um, session uh, do work for the Wessex Cancer Alliance that's something we need to bring up in that to say that's um, if we want to really get early although it's not early diagnosis but if we want better outcomes we certainly need a service for patients where it's easier for GPs to know identify where to refer these people to. Okay can I thank you both for your contribution uh, to this event it's been really helpful having both your experience and knowledge and thank you very much indeed.